If you didn't love map chocolate before this episode, you certainly will after. Today on Well Tempered, I bring to you Mackenzie Rivers, founder, chocolate maker, and Jane of all trades for map chocolate in Oregon. It's rare that you come across visionaries that are capable of changing the industry. But as I said to a colleague earlier today, I believe that map chocolate has arrived. We're just waiting for the masses to catch on. I'm so glad that you're joining us, and I hope that you enjoy this special episode with a super special lady. I'm Lauren Heinick, founder at Weekend Chocolate, lover of human stories, and community builder. Without further ado, here's our show. hilarious when you think that the name of the company is map because <laughs> i'm telling people no no you don't need a map that little place in the crease fold in the middle go for that the place you can't really see very well but my sister named the company so maybe that was her way of saying okay here you go how did the naming structure take place when i decided that i was going to make chocolate and it was literally like i said oh my god i'm gonna make chocolate i'm gonna be a chocolate maker and I called her up and I say, I'm going to make chocolate. And she's like, oh, okay. And she instantly this time was like, yes, yes, you are. Like she felt it too. And then we hung up. And then the next day she called me up and she said, now, look, I have to give you this advice. And I never take her advice ever, which is a thing between us. She's older and I'm, so she knows, don't give me advice. She has to give it to me in a way that it's like when you give your dog a pill, you put it in the food. <laughs> they swallow the pill and they don't know. She has to give me the advice. In a way that I'm just like, no, because I'm so stubborn. She said, you're going to name the company Map Chocolate. And I was like, what? And she goes, Map, because you love maps. I said, I do. Well, I do, but not as much as you do because she really loves maps. (laughs) And so she goes, no, it doesn't mean about a map. It stands for McKinsey and People. And I was like, absolutely. That's the name of the company. And then when I was first designing the packaging, I didn't want any maps. No, there will be no maps. People were like, where's the map? (laughs) How come you don't have maps? You know, I was handing out the chocolate to my family and friends. And they're like, oh, this would be cute if it had a map. And I actually thought, okay, you know, maybe there are maps out there that I'll use. And so that, and I'm so happy that I actually, which is one of the things, you know, sort of one of the answers to one of your questions. I actually listened to the people who are eating my chocolate. Right. At a certain point, you actually have to listen to them. But it's like if you walk into a gallery and you see a painting, well, the freaking purpose of the painting, the artist, whoever they were, they didn't create it to be in a vacuum in their own little mind or their back room or their storage room, I'm assuming, unless, you know, years later somebody found it and drug it out and said this is great art and stuck it on a wall. It's there so you can interact with it or engage with it. And with food, oh, my God, like you're taking it into your body it's becoming part of your experience and being and so I think that's the biggest thing I've learned in the I'm don't give me advice I'm going to do things my own way is the joy of listening to other people the joy of hearing them or at least trying to listen and hearing bits of what they're trying to say to me it that is like this incredible conversation that I had no idea would be part of this. 
This dialogue that you've created, I mean, if you were to split your company into a percentage, how much of that is you and how much of that is the people, the voice of the consumer? I don't know, because it seems so fluid, you know? It's like there's a river flowing by and you reach in with a cup and scoop some out and you reach in with a bucket. There might be more in the bucket than there is in the cup, but it's still the same river flowing by. For example, last week I had chocolate bought from one of my idols, one of my gurus, an author I have read, every book that that person has written. That if I saw them on the street, I would like fall down at their feet and be like, oh my God, it's you. That person ordered chocolate from me out of the blue. Oh my God. I was like, really, really, really? Like, could it be this person? At the same week, a person who lives in a rural area who had never had craft chocolate before. Like, I eat Hershey's, but I really want to try your chocolate. They both order chocolate in the same week. And to me, both of those conversations, one's not a bigger bucket full than the other. They were both like, oh my God, that connection with these other people and what it means to them, of course, is completely different, or maybe it doesn't mean to them than it means to me. But uh, it, it seemed all on the equal flow of it for me of like, like little ripples and waves coming by in the river that I just didn't realize. I didn't realize I would get that kind of happiness or joy. Like when... Um, I still get it that, oh my God, people are trying what I'm making. I'm creating this and people are like, oh, okay, I'll give that a go. It just blows my mind. I love it. It doesn't matter even when somebody orders, you know, a shit pile of cases, I'm still blown away by it. That I didn't know about. Have you had this experience beforehand in, in your other lives, so to speak? Has there been that moment of I'm making this and people are appreciating what I'm doing? That could be translated as a tour guide when someone experiences something around the bend for the first time. But you tell me. When I was a river guide, people did, you know, first of all, it's the Grand Canyon. So, hello, it's the Grand Canyon. Everybody in the world, practically, it's sort of the Grand Canyon. And so it comes with a certain set of expectations. This place is going to be really big and really amazing and really beautiful and one of the greatest wonders on earth and all this history behind it. And so... Yes, they tended to treat the river guides. We were like rock stars. Like people would like be taking our pictures and whatever we said was like, you know, the most amazing thing and whatever. But the part that felt the most wonderful was the leveling out within first day. Nobody knows anybody because it's like an airplane. You sign up for the trip and maybe you come with three of your friends or maybe you're with a couple, maybe you're by yourself or maybe there's like 10 of you in a group, but you fill the slots, right? So there are you know, 24 people going down the river and then you've got this crew of guides. So on the first day, nobody knows each other and they all feel very separate. By the end of the first afternoon, they're maybe talking to the other people, but they're still very separate in their own little world. Here to have this experience. I have paid this money. Now I'm, I'm this is in my bucket list or whatever, right? But by lunch on the second day, you could start seeing the edges getting rounded off. People suddenly, things falling away from them. And then by the third day, it was a tribe. People would say, oh my God, I have never felt this way. Like you're just, all that other stuff, so our worlds, our lives were just gone. 
And then at that point, the river and the Grand Canyon became incredibly small and they started seeing these little tiny details and it wasn't about the big. And in fact, the big became almost like this giant fake movie backdrop. Like what? That can't be real. Oh my God. That's so tall. Look how bizarre. It's so giant. And it became more about little tiny bits of things that they would start to see and then see in each other as well. And on every freaking trip, we would have people at the end of the trip bawling their eyes out. I mean, like CEOs of big companies and like people from all over the world. Like who does that on a vacation? Like you're just bawling your eyes out with these people who were complete strangers 277 miles back. And yet you're completely like, oh my God. And it wasn't because of the Grand Canyon was grand or big. It was because it all boiled down to the smallness of it, that the beauty of everything is in the smallness. Like, here we all are in this little boat together. Well, Mackenzie, I have to let you in on a secret that I pushed record early on (laughs) because (laughs) I was like, this is too good. I know that she's an unorthodox woman and that she's going to be providing some juicy, juicy things for us to start the show with. It is such of what MAP is about, and I think what you are about, and I love that that comes through to the audience. So you gave a pretty comprehensive yet jumbled idea, but I would love to take it from there. Where do we stand between where you are now with MAP and how this came to be from the River Guide, from all these experiences that have now brought you to Oregon? Yeah. I was a River Guide for 19 years, and then I had my son, and you aren't a river guide and take a baby down the river. I didn't, I know I'll be honest. I'd never even held a baby until I had my own. It was never something that I didn't want, but it was never something that I had in my plans because I had so many other things I was doing. And of course I was a river guide. You're on the river. And I worked for, besides being a commercial river guide, I was um, a river ranger for the department of the interior in the off season. So there were years I worked year round. And at one point in my life, I had bit more nights sleeping on the ground outdoors than I had indoors. So, you know, having a baby wasn't really, it seemed like a nice thing, maybe someday, but there I was. And I was ready to leave the river at the time. So I left the river and really felt like a huge, a huge loss, a huge gap. And I think it's like, okay, if you're an astronaut, you aren't an astronaut anymore. You're not going to outer space. It's gone. If you are a professional baseball player, you're not walking out on the pitcher's mound. And so it's, I think it's one of those careers where it's just, you, you're you gone and you're gone. I mean, you know, you have to have permits to get in the Grand Canyon or spend a lot of money to take a trip. I wasn't just going to casually go back. And I actually tried when my son was two, the company wanted me to come back and work. And I was like, I will. And I drove down there. I arranged all the, you know, care, this, that, and the other. And I drove all the way down from Idaho, I lived in Idaho, down to Flagstaff, where we were based, and spent a night listening to my crew that I would be working with, these young guides I hadn't met in the two years I'd been gone. You know, oh, dude, I blew chunks all the way here. And I was just like, oh, are you kidding me? Now I'm done. I'm officially done. I just couldn't go back. So I left my boss, whose name was John, a dear John note, dear John, I'm out of here. Goodbye. And I got in my car the next morning and drove all the way home. And home is? Oh, it was in Idaho at the time. I lived in Boise, Idaho. So when I was a river guide, I was down in Arizona in the summers, and then I had a home base in Idaho in the winters. I had always been a gardener. That was my interest in the grass seed. I tried to have these little native grass 
gardens in the Grand Canyon. I would collect grass seeds and grow them. And I had done an internship with David Packard, who owned Hewlett Packard Computers. He also had a, an interest in grass restoration. So I needed money to feed my family. And I volunteered at an organic farm and loved it. And I'd always, I've always been a big reader. So I had done a lot of reading and I'd had gardens and bees and stuff throughout my life here and there. Anyway, so I worked on this organic farm and then um, this person came to me and said, um, I was told to find you and I'm starting this farm um, for refugees who are being relocated to Boise and I heard that you're the person I should come to. She was trying to do like a job training platform for the refugees and I said, well, why do you thank me? And she's like, oh, I don't have people to set. I need to find you. So she wanted me to be like the head farmer, put it all together and we convinced Idaho Power to give us a 100-year lease on this really tiny, ugly strip of land that had at one time been an alfalfa field, but it was completely overrun with rabbit brush and sagebrush. We had $1,000 that Tara had scraped up. She used to work for Nike, and she had done work with third world populations around the world, and this was like her driving mission to help the refugees because they were being relocated at the same time the economy was starting to really tank and most of them were becoming homeless. So they would come to the United States, they would be giving a few ESL classes, some food vouchers, and then out on the street, which was horrific. I had this idea with her that we could have an organic farm and it would create a platform so people could get to know the refugees and then they would find jobs. And it really did explode from there in the best of ways. We were able to create on a one-acre plot a farm that I divided into three different sections. One was for the refugees to plant whatever the heck they wanted to plant because they had their own foods and things that they loved. And if we could grow it there in Idaho, we would try. And they could take the food from it. And a other third, I planted in all these different varieties of potatoes. As luck would happen, this restaurant was opening in Boise called the Idaho Fry Company, and they wanted to feature all different types of French fries made from different types of potatoes. And so they came to us and said, we'll buy everything that you grow. So we pre-sold, which was kind of wow. scary, right? Like, okay, I've already sold all the potatoes. Let's hope they grow. And then the other third... I divided into like little garden plots as if you were going to have a garden in your backyard and we sold them to people at sort of like a victory garden, but like, look, uh, the refugee trainees will help you plant it and you can harvest the food or you can donate it. You can work alongside them or we can take care of it. If you go on vacation, someone's taking care of your garden. And, um, that was like an amazing thing. We sold every single one of them. They were four by six. We sold them for $250 each. Most of the people donated food. The, at the end of the first year, we donated over 10,000 pounds of food to the food bank. And now Common Ground Farm is like this huge, huge organization with, you know, a giant board of directors. And they've partnered with a, a kitchen called Life's Kitchen which takes at-risk youth and gives them job training skills, work in kitchens, you know, to be like chefs and all that sort of thing, and school lunches and school gardens. It's an incredible community venture now. Yeah, what a beautiful concept. And to know that it not only came to fruition, but thrived within its community. I was just, you know, at the beginning of it, but it's 
amazing what they're doing now. And again, timely what they're doing now. So I did that. And then I decided that enough of suburbia. I moved us to Whidbey Island, which is outside of Seattle. I lived there and for a little bit and then ended up moving to, to Oregon. And I really, I have to be honest, I was doing jobs, but they were filler. They were um, just to pay bills. I mean, I did data entry, which I actually really loved. I just stared at numbers all day and corrected details that were out of place for um, an energy auditing company out of Alaska. They're scientists. They had the contract for all the labs down in Antarctica. And so I was on a computer and doing numbers all day. And this is a person who was used to having like tools in her hands and whether they're oars or, you know, as a pastry chef, all my tools and as a farmer, of course, tools. And now I'm sitting inside at a computer. But you enjoyed I it. I did. I mean, which, which part of it did you find enjoyable? <laughs> a to B. It was like, do the work, it's done, take it off the list. It was very soothing. I mean, I almost think it was one of those, like a respite that my, my own energies, my creativity, whatever it needed. You know, and I should say, all throughout my life, I have um, been a writer. When I was a kid, I wrote poetry. I was told at a young age that my poetry was too adult, that this, this couldn't possibly have come from a child. And um, my mom went to bat for me over and over about that. And I ended up going to college, and I was on a poetry scholarship. I wrote poetry in college. I never wrote anything else. I mean, papers, whatever. I was an English major and an art history major. But um, I got out of college, and then I didn't write anything for many, many years. I mean, not even letters to people. So when my son Finn was born, the way that I kept my connection to the river was I started writing about it. If the baby was asleep, I would write. Anytime I had a spare minute, I was writing. A person that my sister knew, my sister said, oh, you know, you should read my sister's writing. It's really good. Like your family always says that. Oh, the writing's really good or whatever. And unbeknownst to me, my sister took my writing these agents represented Charles Schultz and other writers. And they took my writing, what I'd written, sort of like these memoirs of the river, took them around to try to get them published. And I got, you know, these really beautiful rejections. And people say, like, it's ahead of its time. It's just that people aren't ready for this kind of writing yet. Of course, now, like, we've all been, like, hammered by, like, those types of writings or whatever. But so I continued to write. So whatever I was doing, I was always just writing. But not making a living from it or not even sending it out there, on occasion I would. So when I was doing data entry, I would still write all the time. And that was like a balancing thing, right? I'm just doing this job in the numbers and I'm writing, but it still wasn't enough. And I think a lots of people have had that feeling of what am I here for or what is my true calling or my path and that inkling of how's it going to be? How am I going to find it? So my son was at a school that John Nancy from Chalkin Alchemy, his daughter was in my son's class. I did not know that John did chocolate. John is very quiet. Not, I just didn't really even know who he was. And one day he asked me if I wanted coffee. I'm like, sure. So I thought he did. I thought he did, had something to do with coffee because he brought me this giant bag of roasted coffee beans. He has a side interest in coffee. He, you know, he helped with the Beamer coffee roaster, which chocolate makers use to roast small batches of cocoa beans. And he has invented coffee maker espresso machine, <laughs> which won like some international like espresso machine award. So he'll test machines and roast coffee and he always has too much coffee. And then we were talking one day and he said, well, 
you know, something about cocoa beans. And I was like, what? And he's like, you know, I, I make chocolate. I'm like, what do you even mean by that? I had clues. clues. What do you mean? So he said, we'll just come out to the warehouse and see. So I did. I drove out there and I walked in and it blew me away. All the different beans. I think he had maybe 20, maybe 18 or 20 different origins at that time. And I just ran around at the barrels smelling them and just blown away by it. The idea that there wasn't just a cocoa bean. <laughs> a, one type of cocoa bean. I had no clue about it all. So he um, said, well, you should, you should try to make chocolate sometime and just left it at that. He never said like, here's the equipment or whatever. Here's how you do it. That's not who he is. Well, here's my website and, and here's the things you can buy, which, you know, so many people right. get started no, He never even way. said that. But another parent from the school who's friends with him said, I know how to make chocolate and I'll show you how. We met back at John's warehouse and she's like, pick out some beans. And I'm like, what? So like, I looked around and I picked out some beans, like not really good beans to start with at first. I know that now. Oh, I'll try these. And um, we roasted them. I watched, you know, we roasted it in the Beemore and then we wintered them. And I was like, still so clueless. I'm really not sure of what's going on. And then we borrowed a grinder from John and brought it to my house. And she's like, okay, now you're going to put it in there. And here's a recipe, which I still have this little handwritten recipe that John gave us, the formulation. And um, make chocolate. And then she left. And I started making chocolate. And of course, you know, the scent, the aroma that starts coming out is in some ways so much more amazing than the flavor. It's like a shock. Like, oh my God, it smells like chocolate. <laughs> like really like amazing right. chocolate. And um, so that's when I went over and called my sister and said, I'm going to be a chocolate maker. And it all just seemed to make perfect sense without even knowing, you know, and I, and I think that day I got online and I'm like, oh, there are these people called Dick Taylor. Aren't they cute? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that there was this world. You know, I hadn't eaten any craft chocolate. I didn't know about craft chocolate. I didn't know the phrase craft chocolate. I didn't know any of that. And John, he's he wasn't talking about that yet. So I started making chocolate on my own. And I'd, you know, order the beans from John, go out there and pick them up and borrow equipment. And my sister bought me a, a little grinder for my birthday present my investment was a $50 purchase of, you know, beans and cocoa butter and some sugar. I was terrified because I'm like, okay, we're eating ramen for the next two weeks. <laughs> I just took our grocery money and I'm starting this business, which I didn't, I'll be honest, I did not have a business plan. I didn't say at a certain point, I'll have X number of grinders or employees where I'm going with it. I just dove into the chocolate part first and then, um, Passed it out to all those willing participants. When you say, would you eat my chocolate? Everyone's always like, please. I got really good feedback. And then um, I just kept making chocolate and sending it to my family and friends. And um, I just kept going from there. And, you know, looking online and reading about it, reading John's website. And then in that fall, John offered me a job. And I worked for him. And like the first year we basically didn't talk because we, we both are work by ourselves, quiet worker types. And John 
hired me so he could focus on some of his inventions that he's doing that he really needed to be able to do that. And he was, you know, kind of scared for him to hand over somebody to be doing the job that he's done for such a long time. But he, he's such a great teacher. He's very much a, here it is, now go see what happens kind of a teacher. And I'm here if you have questions. So he had me doing everything from packing and shipping and winnowing. Uh, you will not touch the roaster. Like that was like not even an issue. Yeah. <laughs> that was the rule. He, he roasts okay. the beans. Stay away from it. <laughs> and um, so I did packing and shipping and winnowing and building winnowers, which, you know, I, my tools are like sort of old fashioned tools, you know, not like saws, cutting metal and things like that. So that was kind of interesting. I learned all that and learned how to build the winnowers. So really for the first year, I'm not sure John knew I was even making chocolate. Like he knew, but it's sort of like, oh, there's a tree outside my window. Okay. Like it's over there. Like not, he wasn't asking me about chocolate. He wasn't. And it's, it's not that he was discouraging in any way. It's just John. He is a true Renaissance person. He has so many projects and so many people from little makers to giant makers talking to him all the time. And he just had his own thing going. And I just observed. It was like I was learning through osmosis. Was that also you that, you know, within that first year of trying to absorb everything, you were also maybe subconsciously saying to yourself, this is just a hobby. This is just something I'm enjoying. I will say I never said this is just a hobby. I just thought, it's like if you could open a book and you think, well, I'm going to read this book. And you're, you think, I'll go from page one to page 250. But if you were to suddenly open a book and when you get to page two, suddenly page two would fork off into three or four other pages. And then you go, well, well, here's page two. And it just forked off in these different directions. And now I'm going to take, you know, I'll read page A, page B, page C. And then page C did its own forking off in other directions. I mean, that's what it was sort of like for me. I think if you're home and you order beans, most people order one bean or maybe a few samples of beans. And they start their home chocolate making. But I was completely, fully immersed in all these beans, all these origins, all these samples coming into John all the time. And it was almost mind-blowing, like to go from not even knowing that there's more than one origin of cocoa beans in the world, that they grow where? Like, I really just jumped in. I think for me, I just wanted to be doing it and observing and listening at the same time. And so I just kept making chocolate, buying, trying different beans. I would walk around the barrels and I would look at them and I would smell them. Uh, it sounds like all like woo woo or whatever, but some, some beans just did not speak to me. I had my own opinions about them from the beginning and they still don't. And other beans, I just couldn't wait to try. I think the thing for John was when the Honduras beans came in and the the delivery guy showed up and John wasn't there that day. And I'm like, oh, what's this bag is like half empty. Literally it's like a, an open bag of cocoa beans, not even tied up. Half the beans are gone. And I'm like, I guess I'll accept the delivery. And I'm so happy that I did. And then John came, he's like, Oh my God, I, what are these? This, you know, this, this poor farmer, he's gonna be so disappointed. It was so hard for him to get these beans to me to begin with. And John sort of discounted them at first. And Mackenzie, would you stop and tell us the origin of the Honduras beans? I guess the farmer specifically and when this was all taking place. Yeah. So the beans from Honduras are from Lampa Sirpi. And um, 
what I didn't know at the time was there was um, a, I don't, I don't know if they're an entrepreneur, a person, I think they're in Texas somewhere. Somehow they had this connection with Honduras and they knew that people there, that you either do the drug trade or you're beholden to the drug trade or, you know, your life is like really bad because of the drug trade. Not a great place to live for political and economic reasons. And we all know now like cacao has grown there and but it's really hard, even if, if you have your little house, you're living in these remote villages, maybe you have cacao beans, but how are you supposed to get those to market? How does it even happen? They had found this area where cacao had been grown and there were all these cacao trees. And they said, we're going to help you take the cacao to market. And it's like a jungle. And the people were out there trying to like whack at it with machetes. And then the investor realized um, that's not going to work. We'll get them solar powered weed whackers, and they started like bringing some money and trying to help them. But they really, they had this idea to help the cacao farmers, but they really didn't know how to help them. So George said to the farmers, just get me some beans, give me some beans. And then he, who ferments beans? And um, th- there was some, this old gentleman in Honduras who knows how to ferment beans and they brought him in and he oversaw the fermentation of this first lot of beans. And it was a really tiny amount. And I don't know how he got in touch with John. I think he was thinking like, is there a market for selling the beans? Can we have these people produce beans and then we'll bring it to the, you know, the market. And um, he sent, he didn't really know how to close up the bag, how to ship it, but they shipped it. And so this, here's this bag of half, half full, half empty, however you want to look at it. They did not smell good. I will say that. The beans, I was like, whoa. But something about them, I, I literally felt sorry. For, I felt sorry. Like, oh my God, this person sent these beans. And so I took some home and made chocolate and loved it. I was so shocked by it. Anyway, so it was after that point when I think John and I started really talking. And I would just walk in I would work for him two and three days a week. Back then, I think I was working three days a week. And I would have some question. And I always, he's such a busy person and he's so generous with his time. I would make sure it was a question that it wasn't just something I could just go on his website and maybe look up or find in some other source. And um, sometimes the questions had a lot to do with chemistry because he is a chemist. I'm fascinated by chemistry, but don't really know anything about it. Some things had to do with physics and the universe. We would go in these amazing directions. Sometimes I'd ask a question. We might talk about it for two hours before I got to work. That is invaluable. You're not only having access to all these beans as the beans are coming in and different crops of beans coming in, asking John questions about that, asking him questions just from his incredible base of knowledge, you know, that was good. But then it crosses that threshold of like uh, the apprentice is now doing it on her own and has her own opinions. And we definitely have different opinions about different things. I mean, I think John famously said to Colin Gasco, I've, there's no such thing as bad chocolate. And I'm like, oh, I have had bad chocolate. <laughs> I have made bad chocolate. I have tasted other people's chocolate that really did not taste good. But John doesn't really believe that. He holds to it. No, there's mm. no, I've never tasted bad chocolate, he says. So I would not have started if it hadn't been for him, not just because of his the beans and his information, but, um, you know, I got to use his winnower. I get to use, the, I, and I, to this day, I still use the ether, which is great. Now, you know, I started roasting. He taught me how to roast in 
a bigger roaster. You have to say, it's like, because I've had to do volume for him, I mean, he gets tremendously big orders. Need to window 800 pounds today for so-and-so or whatever. Um, and lots of breweries get beans and, you know, get nibs from him. So I've done huge volumes of roasting and winnowing that probably I wouldn't have done like being in business this short amount of time, which has been really helpful. Oh, indeed. Those numbers are staggering to someone like myself who's just starting out. Yeah, and it is. John, in the past two years, I mean, his business has just grown, accelerated. It's amazing. I mean, a lot of his business doesn't have anything to do with the warehouse. He moves beans out of, you know, East Bay Logistics. He has beans down there and beans on the East Coast. And so big companies order beans from him and he, you know, ships them out. So I don't ever see those, but the volume of his business here is is unbelievable. So it's good. Right. It's fantastic to learn that you're both doing well. And it's no surprise to me that you mentioned that he's a very busy person, yet also super generous with his time, because I think you fall into that category as well. Since the conception of your business, been doing everything basically alone. And yet you've also managed to find time to help and mentor other people that are getting started. I don't know if you want to speak at all to mentoring or if where you might see the industry right now with how important that element is for for the growth of the industry. I definitely think it's important. I mean, I I feel like I've done very little mentoring. I mean, people, you know, email me, ask me questions or send me their chocolate and ask me to try it. And I, I feel like if somebody is asking someone a question, I mean, how can you not answer the question? You know, I don't, I mean, to me, it just seems like it's all making the industry better for everybody. And I have definite opinions about that aspect of it. You know, I, I don't think everybody in the industry wants there to be more makers in the industry, but I have a, I just believe that um, the more makers there are, then it's better for all of us, you know? So anyway, um, and I do, there's a person in New York who works with makers in other countries. So I get a lot of chocolate from people that are making it at origin who are trying to figure things out. That's really exciting, I think. It's really, really exciting to know that that's going on and happening. And there's some really good chocolate coming into the world, which I, I love. I'm a chocolate lover, so I want, you know, good chocolate in the world. Anyway, it's, I, I do think it's necessary for the industry. And I think it goes to that one sort of discussion we had in email. Our society is really focused on yield. A success of a business is often measured by who sells the most chocolate bars, who, whatever. It's all this yield-based emphasis. That's not my approach to my business. And every potential investor who might be listening to this right now just said X are off the list because everything's about how much are you going to build or create. Ergo, how much are you going to earn? What's the bottom line going to be? How much money are you making? I think the problem with that in craft chocolate is and I had two of the bigger, well-known makers say this to me at the Northwest Fest, that the problems that I'm facing in my own business right now, I've exceeded my capacity. I had to turn away wholesale accounts. Like, you don't ever want to do that, right? You're building a business. You don't want to say no. No, I'm sorry. No, I can't. I can't send you chocolate. Because I literally cannot, in a 24-hour day, seven days a week, make enough and temper enough and package it enough at my current production process. It's just me. And 
it doesn't matter if I have X number of small grinders or how many hours I spend tempering and buy more molds. What they both said to me was, you will just replicate this. You will buy bigger equipment and more molds and hire employees and you will take on more accounts and you will have to buy more beans and now it will replicate. And as that replicates, the number of the amount that you have in receivables outstanding, the money people owe to you, will grow. You are not going to make any more money. You'll maybe pay yourself a salary and then you'll replicate. Now, if I can just take on X number more of accounts and on it goes. And I heard that and I believe them. I mean, they're in business and they're both of these companies are hugely successful and they are freaking exhausted <laughs> and fried. So Mackenzie, is success in that definition selling more? Is that ultimately what we're coming to terms with in that if you get to the point where you're labeled as, as doing well, that means that you're in more wholesale outlets, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's more food on your table. I think part of it is in order to sell more, you have to go with the bigger scaled equipment that it was never scaled for craft chocolate, right? It's like you're a craft chocolate maker because it's more hands-on, but in order to survive, you have to sell more. And so then you have to scale up to this bigger equipment, which is factory equipment. I mean, you cannot tell me that when you're tempering 600 pounds that you are now not a factory. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with being a factory. I think that it's just, it's a different focal point. I mean, factories have human beings loading, you know, food into, onto conveyor belts or whatever. It's not that there's a factory that doesn't have human beings. But uh, I think what happens then is, I see it online and there's this push for now, now you need a distributor. You're going to go to Europe and you're going to have all these shops. You're not going to go there yourself and have a relationship with the shop owners but you want your bars in Europe because you need to be in as many shops and outlets as possible to make the money. And so then you have a distributor and they take another cut. And so when you really look at the, the margins, the business end of it, of course, the margin on retail is much higher than it is for wholesale. And then the amount that the maker makes per bar in wholesale gets chiseled smaller and smaller. And so from my experience, I've looked at that number and I go, oh my God, if I can make 2000 bars this week and not just like 30 bars or whatever, if I could just make more bars, but then everything scales according to that. So I was looking at based on the, the numbers of my business, what they've gone, the trajectory that has not, has not reached a peak yet. It's continuing to go upwards based on those numbers. How many beans do I need to buy this year? And then you look at the outlay of money it costs to buy those beans. And now, okay, if I'm going to go to a bigger size equipment, you have to factor in, well, how many beans then am I going to go through to make X number of bars? How many molds do I need? I mean, there's a lot to put into place. And I think if you have, if you have investors or you have capital you inherited or however people come up with their money, I don't know, credit cards, whatever they do. It can be easy to go that route and think, I'll buy more beans, bigger equipment, hire people, and keep doing that over and over. And I think Scharfenberger is the one that said they sold their company, and nobody's done that yet. That's sort of like Dagoba, right? You build it big enough, and then you sell to factory chocolate. I hope, I mean, I'm sure that will happen with some makers. They'll get big enough, 
and then there's this money. And I mean, this was happening in craft beer, right? You've got wonderful craft brewers like Elysium and Seattle. They're owned by like Bushnell or whoever. Lagunitas just sold. They're gobbling them up. And so people have made lots of correlations between craft chocolate and craft beer. If it does follow the craft beer, then that will happen. And you kind of understand it. I mean, people have families, they have lives, they have interests, they want their business to be a success. And maybe a success to them is build it and then sell it. And that's fine. But on my end, my goal, because I really, over Christmas, I mean, I thought, oh my gosh, I worked with the exception of the Northwest Chocolate Factory. I worked for months, seven days a week. I worked for John two days a week so that I always have this source of income, keep the lights on in my house. And then also I have use of his equipment and it's like a whole seven day a week, never anything. And trying to temper that many bars by myself. I mean, there's no way I could like train somebody, bring them in, moving into this new warehouse, which is just a little bigger than what I'm in now. And I thought, okay, this cannot be that this, this is not what I'm doing. Right. And so I really took the time at the holidays, I said, you're going to take a breather and you're going to do this your way. That is the number one thing I would say to any maker or anyone starting their own businesses. You have to say to yourself, you can do it your way. It is not how anyone else is doing it, how they're riding their pony down the street. It's how you want to do it. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. And sometimes it's hard to see how you might see how you want to do it, but how are you going to get there? And so for me, it was either continue as I'm doing, and I would probably keel over. They would find me, you know, my boots in the air. Okay, chocolate maker keeled over because she's from exhaustion. Or would it be this other drive toward just bigness? And I, I was like, that's not it either. So my, my reason for making chocolate has never been about yield. It's never been, I want to make X number of bars at the end of the month or whatever. Mine, I'm not speaking to how anyone else is doing it, but my reason for doing it is about reach. I want the chocolate bar in someone's hands and I want them to look at the package and go, what the heck does she mean? Cherry blossoms at night. What does she mean, both man and bird and beast? What does she mean by night swimming and oh, this is Belize. I've, you know, maybe if they've heard of craft chocolate, they're, oh, I've tried a Belize bar before, or they understand what percentage means. And they're like, oh, well, I'll try this. And then they open the bar and they see the note inside and however they experience it in their own unique way, they have an experience through the bar and that kind of feeling of smallness, <laughs> like back to the Grand Canyon. It's not about like big, it's about right here in this moment and wherever that moment takes you. And so I said to myself, well, that has been my thing all along. That's what gives me the thrill. It's when I open up an email and someone has taken the time to write me about one of my bars that they ate. I don't ever want to be at the place where I have somebody else answering those emails because that's my joy. And it's my own selfish joy that I don't want to give up. I decided what do I love and how can I do it my way? So I looked at it and I went back to my earlier notes, sort of my wish list of when I was making my first batches. Like I wrote these long lists of what the company was going to be. And I tried to line up. Have I, you know, accomplished these things? Am I gotten close to the other things? And what are the things I've forgotten? 
And that is what I think happens when the treadmill starts happening and bigger and more bigger equipment. I've got to have it out there more and more and more is it's just human nature to sort of lose grasp of why you're doing it to begin with. And if your focus has been yield to begin with, then you're probably fine. If your focus was, I'm passionate about this origin, or I want to blow people away, or I want to make the world's most memorable bar or whatever, you have to hold on to that. You can't just let the mechanization of it take over. I so appreciate that perspective. And I've certainly felt even that pinch since launching and thinking about where it might grow. Maybe investors get to the point or however small companies evolve and maybe purchases do happen or they evolve to incorporate another line under a larger umbrella of another company, but that it's not about how much you produce, it's about how many people you impact. And like you're saying with this reach, I think we're getting to a place as consumers where we're, we're thinking about less is more. That's finally sinking in to many of us that have gone through this whole process of I must have and I must buy. And and now it really is about what brings me joy. What can I pull into my life that I will have this, you know, pause moment. And I love that you're saying the small moment, even within our like very big world. That's my thing. You know, that's really what it's always been about. And I think you do an excellent job of portraying that. It's so clear and evident from reading the comments of consumers, friends, clients, however you want to describe them, that take part in enjoying map chocolate. And it is so much more than just eating chocolate. Well, I hope so. (laughs) And you've created that for them. Well, thanks. Congratulations on what you've built and wherever this boutique size lands you. I know you're talking a little general in size now. And... I'm not asking you to to portray numbers precisely of, as you said, that was never part of your goal to say, I want to make 2000 bars a month. But what does small look like to you? The way I mapped it out over the holidays moving forward is like, okay, I more efficient equipment. If I want to reach people and reach can be more, I do want to reach more people. I do want more people to have the experience. Then I'm going to have to have equipment that I can use that I can maybe have a couple of employees working with me and working all together and using it. I looked at that and I decided the grinder that I want to buy, like I said before, I've always been very tool oriented. I have my oars that I use in the Grand Canyon on 99 Grand Canyon trips are hanging outside my kitchen window. I see them every day. And I, <laughs> I tend to be kind of a Luddite when it comes to tools. My first car I bought was a vintage 1968 Land Rover that didn't have a battery. I had to hand crank it. If I'm going to buy something that I see as a tool, I want it to be something that's going to last. So I will say right now, I completely fell in love with Sam from Videri. Has, he has a chocolate maker. He's created this grinder, a melanger. I love it that it's designed and made by a chocolate maker, that it's built by people who welders and people who know what they're doing and care about it. I'm in love. I'm in love with the machine. And um, so I've got my eyes set on that so it can do 65 kilograms. So it's bigger than what I'm using now. And I can do like 20 pounds at a time. But in order to do that, because it's, it, it's something that's made in America and it's more expensive than some of the things that are on the market that people have I'll say, constant issues with. So um, I'm going to do a crowdsourcing campaign in order to buy it. And that, I have to say, asking for the backing 
is not my comfort zone. I've had people say to me in the past year, you should, you do crowdsourcing and all the money that comes in goes back into the business, but it's to a point now where there's, there's not enough to take the next step for me. The next step for me is small that, like I said to John the other day, if you're a big company and you make a lot of money and you sell a lot of bars, you're giving back because, you know, you're hiring employees and you're helping them with their families and their lives and maybe you donate money or whatever. And I said, you know, I don't want to be big like that, but I do want to be able to give back. I even hiring a couple people, I want to be able to give back. But I have another interest for MAP in our community. We have a huge number of, of homeless students. 2,000 in my son's school district alone are homeless and that are in the school system. And there's a huge number of homeless high school students. And we have one of the highest rates of what are called unemancipated high school students. So they are homeless. They are too old to be in the foster care system. And they're going to high school. And one girl who was 18 was living in the dumpster at the public library and making straight A's at school. And these kids are, you know, they are like so close to falling through the gaps and the craps and the system's just not set up to help them, they got together and wrote to the University of Oregon and proposed scholarships for homeless students. They came up with their own proposal. They're amazing. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I know how hard it is for my son as a 16-year-old to be navigating the world, and he has me. And these are kids who don't have anyone. So going way back to what Tara and I did with the job training platform and with Life's Kitchen, you know, I said, John, I'm going to do that. I'm going to have a program where I'll give these kids jobs and I'll train them. They don't have to be chocolate makers when they grow up, but they're going to actually have a job and they can learn what it's like to have responsibilities and an adult in their life that actually cares about them and cares about their well-being. And I said, so that's the direction I want MAP to go in. It is like taking on in some ways a whole other ball of chocolate (laughs) because it will be its own separate entity from map chocolate. That's really heartwarming. So wonderful to hear. I mean, I think when you start a business, it's difficult to determine really what the path of the business will take. Even if you have goals and aspirations and you write down your, your list of the things you want to accomplish or your business plan, if that might be your MO, then there's always the twists and turns. And it's so easy, I think, to forget that things take time also. And we discover and learn on our journey. So I love that you're now being able to kind of look in the rearview mirror of sorts and and see where you're going, but also where you've come from. Exactly. And it does amaze me when I think sometimes you don't see how it's all going to come together. You can't see that. And And it will continue to come together in your life. You know, it's like when you're younger, it just seems like this long open road and where is it headed? And then as I've gotten older, I'm just amazed. My sister laughs. She goes, well, you always wanted to be a writer, and now you're a chocolate maker who writes. Like, I like I'm, I write those little notes. I put it in the bars. So I'm like, oh, I'm just putting my writing out there into the world, and people are reading it. And isn't that the goal of a writer, right? People are reading your writing, even if it's little snippets. It's out there. I don't know. I could not, There's no way I could have ever foreseen that that would be how my writing would actually occur or take place. Right. It's not even necessarily on a piece of paper, because I've had many conversations with people that read 
the descriptions of your chocolate bars and you know, myself included, where it, it's moving and it, it's so striking because it's so different than what normal might be within yeah. our industry. And that's also something I think that without saying that we need to be as one way as an industry, I love that there's people breaking boundaries that really let themselves go. I do too. You know, that really say, this is me, this is my personality and deal with it, <laughs> love it, or close the window on your website and uh, find another maker, if you will. I hope there will be, but I actually think there will be. I mean, definitely, I can say from fulfilling orders for John, you know, packing boxes, though there is a lot of chocolate makers coming into the community, more and more. And um, some of them, of course, will just do it as hobbies in their own home or whatever. And then there are others who will have a, a business or who knows where they'll go with it. That's not slowing down. And I love that, which going back to what you were saying about mentoring. So one of the things that I realized when I was sitting here over the holidays was I am so not alone in being at this exact point of wanting to make more. How do I make more? How does this all work? What about the equipment? Before the holidays, I had a chocolate company approach me about being an investor and that was a lot to look at and think about, but it would mean giving up a percentage of ownership of the company. And I really didn't know how I felt about it, but because they have chocolate making equipment, I could use their equipment. And so at first it seemed like, well, that might be the way to go. They have all their employees and they have these ginormous temporary machines and cooling tunnels and everything. I could just walk in there and make my chocolate and hand it over and, they would even pack it. And I thought, whoa, that seems so tempting when you're like trying to get all the orders filled. But at the same time, that's not what I do either. That's not what I want to do. Like what's, that's just not what MAP is. So when I thought, well, I'm at the same place and I, you know, I'm in contact with other small makers. And so I definitely think there's a way, I mean, I don't have it all fleshed out, but I think there's a way that for example, I get my rotter grinder and then you, Lauren, are like, Mackenzie, I would really like to try that out. Come on over. I'm, you know, am I going to be using that grinder 24-7 every day? No, no, because the scale of things is so big. Let's you know, do the math on that. No, I'm not. But you could come for a weekend and make chocolate in it and then take it home with you. It's like, I think that there's a way that there's still a community of making that we can build and not all live in the same place. And I know that even on the face of that, that seems like crazy. Like, oh my gosh, fly somewhere. But if you run the numbers or if we think about it, different people have ideas about it. I think that it actually has, it has potential. It so resonates with me. And I, I'm sure you meant that pun when you said I could just come for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great pun. But I love that. And we have a small group of makers here in Denver, Colorado and, and greater Denver metropolitan area. And I brought that up actually a few months ago. And that was something that was of interest to me because I am bootstrapping everything I'm doing. And I'm just so flushed at trying to think about how I will get bigger than my home kitchen cottage law business yeah. right now. 
And the only way I can think about that is is sharing resources. And I don't think it's everyone's favorite concept because it means that they lose control. And that's a very hard issue when people are thinking about what is theirs. Even though we have, in theory, what we believe is a rather open source industry, we also have a lot of proprietary yeah. businesses. And I do believe that the future is in community. I see this way of us being together in the future in some manner and not having to even be under one umbrella, but just still maintaining our personalities and yeah. our personal brands, but sharing resources. So, Like a guild. We, we could be like a small maker craft talk guild or something. But I agree. And I know there, there are always people who are like, no, you know, they see this competition or that's always going to exist and that's their business path, however they want to do it. But I think that it would be a cool thing to do <laughs> on so many levels. It's a way to be real in what you're doing. I was trying to explain to somebody, they were like, well, if you do the crowdsourcing for this grinder, what if you did it for a, one that costs less and then you could buy the temper machine or whatever. And I, I have my own feeling about things, but then to articulate it, it all goes to be real. I'm trying to make real chocolate. I'm not trying to make factory chocolate. I'm a craft chocolate maker. I believe in tools. I don't want the tools to be something that I have to keep replacing. I don't want it to be a throwaway. I mean, even my packaging, I tried to design it so that there might be some people who literally didn't throw it away, who could save it. And I had someone email me two nights ago with a picture of a lamp they made. It was so cute. They took map wrappers that they've been saving and they like glued it or something to this glass thing. Now they made a lamp. And I was like, that is so cool. I had no, you know, of course I have no idea what people do. And some people can just put them in the recycling bin and that's perfectly fine too. But I like it when people have, I don't want to say the option, but it's just not the same, the same, the same. We have candy bars. We have candy bar wrappers. We have throwaway. We are surrounded you know, in this culture with the same, the same, the same, right? Like Starbucks, every corner or whatever. And I think somehow it's important to have things that are real, that things that are quirky, things that are unique, things that are not mass produced. I just do. So for me, that becomes this like a conviction for the tools I'm going to use going forward. You know, I'm building this business. I'm doing it my own way. I said to Sam from Videri, the grinder I could literally pass that down as an heirloom to my son. Like, that's what I want. Yes, yes. Continuity, I think, is what craft chocolate to me represents. Because just as you said with the wrappers, that someone might use that for another purpose. I think that truly explains a path and a journey, if you will, that we we learn to understand the provenance and the origin of things, and then also how that can be moved forward. Exactly. You sent me the quote from Ira Glass about good taste. I'd be happy to read it to you. Ira Glass says, all of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste, but there's a gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. It's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting, creative work went through this for years. We know our work doesn't have the special thing that we want it to have. 
And if you're just starting out or you're still in this phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will also be as good as your ambitions. I really, I really liked that, that quote. I hadn't read it or encountered it before. How does it resonate with you? It made sense. It made sense that feeling of, I know what I'm trying to create and I, it sucks. I'm not there on so many levels, wanted it to be more. I don't want to say the word better, but you want it to be what you feel or envision it can be as a creative person. And so I, I thought about it for a few days and I thought, gosh, you know, that just it makes so much sense to where I am. And when I'm thinking right now, things all coming together. And then one of those like moments, I don't know, serendipity or whatever, this person who bought chocolate for me is a writer. And I went on their website and this was a quote <laughs> that this person had written recently about good taste. Good taste is not universal. It is tribal. It's not widespread. It's momentary. And this is a part that I just like, oh my God, I loved it. Good taste makes us feel as though we can and will be better. And I was like, that is it. That is totally why you repeat, repeat, work, work, work. Because if we can and will be better, oh my God, that's the truth for everyone. That's the gist of it to me. If I do the work, because I feel like I can and will be better. And then somebody is thinking, oh, this is good. I, or I feel this or I got something from it. Then they can have that same feeling too, that they can and will be better. And that's, I know that sounds crazy. That I'm trying to put that into a chocolate bar. There's some of that I'm trying to put in there. I don't think it sounds crazy. <laughs> I think that's your life's work. Maybe that's why you came onto this earth. And I think that's for the individual to decide. But from what you said and, and the path that you've taken to get here, you're in, you're in love. Yeah. You love what you do. And you love the people that interact with you and that experience your chocolate. And even the ones that have yet to discover it. Yeah, I'm, I am in love with it. And I'm happy with it. You know, I feel very blessed to be doing something that brings me so much happiness. And even in the moments of, oh my gosh, <laughs> how many, how much or whatever, I, you just look up and you realize, wow. The other day I was making the Mount Hood bars where I sprinkle the biscotti on the back and I'm thinking, oh my God. Like if people knew I'm listening to this music and I'm, I don't know, I just enjoy, I enjoy those moments so much. I think people would be like, this is like, you know, a mad woman in here doing this but there you have it take us through that walk us through a more technical from taking the origin to its final production piece or maybe out the door from the factory from the warehouse what are your steps there's a creative process involved with that and you're saying the word biscotti but i know that really for you that means you're making the biscotti yeah and then you're putting it on <laughs> somewhere i say i think it's on my instagram thing or one of the things I say, it's inspired craft chocolate and it's, I, like this summer, I was sitting at my desk and I already had the beans from Vietnam. You know, I'd made some test batches with them and I'm tasting it. And I don't know why, where does it come from? I think to myself, I think a pink cookie, pink. I want a pink cookie, not just a cookie. I'm like, I want shortbread and I want it to be pink. 
And I'm not, not really like a pink person. I don't know why I thought pink shortbread. Instantly in the next moment, I'm like, love shack because I love the B-52s. I'm from that whole era. I used to live down the road from Athens, Georgia. And I sort of like, you know, came into my 20s on the B-52s. And I was like, I'm going to name it Love Shack and it's going to have pink shortbread. Sometimes a chocolate, as I'm tasting it, will, I wouldn't say sometimes, it does. It will say to me, it should go this direction. I'm not afraid to go out on a whim with it. I literally, I, I will make chocolate. I will taste it. I will say, I like it like this. And I will design the wrapper and the bar and send it out into the world world. And I, you know, not everyone will like it. Not everyone will get it. Not everyone obviously will buy it. But sometimes like with the Love Shack bar, people really, really liked that bar. It all just came together. And a part of it is the bean, you know, I guess I'll say this, this wasn't one of your questions, but if I had a pet peeve or if I had to tell, I'll say this, if I had to give advice to a new maker, I would say this, just forget 70%. You want to make my eyes glaze over, you're going to hand me a bar that says 70%. There's like this playbook or a recipe book somewhere that says all chocolate is supposed to be 70%. I know why people do 70 because it's approachable. It's not too dark. It's not on the light side. They think it's in that mid zone. Some beans, maybe 70% is where they should be. That's the best iteration of that chocolate. But that's not the only place a bean can be. And so I think that there's a lot to be discovered and going on either side of that number, playing around with it. My initial test batches when I roast the beans and make the first batch are never at 70%. Like I always want to push the bean a higher percentage just to see. Like if a bean, if a bean is tricky to work with or it's going to have problems or it's complicated or whatever, right? It's, you're going to know it if you make it in the initial batches at 75, 78, or 80%. You're going to really, I think, get a sense of the bean because you're getting less of the sugar. With the Love Shack bar, I made it at a higher percentage. And then it just, I think from there, it was, I don't know. For me, it flows into what it can be next. I mean, I do a lot of inclusions. And I'll be honest and say, I'm selfish. I often, now, when I go to buy craft chocolate I'll be faced with a wall of craft chocolate okay I've you know I've had Ecuador at 72 percent by how many makers or I've had Madagascar so many just plain I will often wish it had a little something more so that's selfish on my part I'm like <laughs> I because you you know from my Instagram like I incorporate chocolate into every day <laughs> every hour of my life um, you know I put it in my coffee in the morning I put it in granola I think it's more than just candy bar, chocolate bar idea that we all have. It's a food. So for me, I just think there's so many ways. I'm doing a bar with miso, testing out miso right now, which sounds crazy. I had the idea, oh, I want to do miso and brown sugar in a bar. Now I got to find, you know, miso's wet. So how do you do that? As a paste, right? Interesting. I will play with things because it's what interests me. I probably have less of a straightforward process. I'll get new beans in. Like I just ordered some beans from Peru that I'm really excited about. I order beans because I'm excited about them. That's like the thing. You know, I love Belize. And I also love 
a variation in harvest. It's a fruit. I mean, it's not going to be the same, like the weather conditions, the, you know, the everything about it is, we shouldn't expect it to be this flat line, the same, this is Belize. It's going to have harvests that have high notes, low notes. That's the beauty of it to me. The fermentation, I mean, you know, all those factors, that so many crazy factors that go into it. I think that's also my approach to chocolate, like maker X over here, they did this bar, this Madagascar at 75% from that harvest. And this is their creation. This is their interpretation of it. And this one over here did it at 70% and that's their interpretation. And for me, I love that. I just don't think that there's one best of each whatever, but that's sort of my approach to food too. You know, I, I eat seasonally. I am not eating strawberries in the middle of the winter in Oregon. They're coming from somewhere else. So to me, it's also a palate education thing when it's seasonal like that and you have an appreciation that it is an agricultural crop, that it's been tended by human beings and the farmers and then loaded up. Like I love those pictures that um, Marignan, Dan posts, like these little burrows and their sacks of beans. It's like, hello, yes, this is a real food. And we've only been duped in the past however many years by the big candy companies and making it into this uh, hologram, you know, of mm-hmm. what it really is. And, and so that's where I, so I think like with kids, little kids, I love it when people tell me, oh, my daughter, oh my gosh, she loves your chocolate. I'm like, oh, how, you know, what does your daughter do? Well, oh, she's in second grade. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I have second graders eating my chocolate. Like, I love that, you know? Right, right. Yes, yes, yes to everything you're saying. Away with 70% in the format in that, you know, not everyone needs to follow that playbook, as you say. The makers are artists, yes, that they learn to speak from their heart and that the, the chocolate is the conduit to do that. That we, again, appreciate it like an agricultural crop that it is. These are all things that we're talking about, you and I here, but that as the listeners of this podcast, likely within the industry, may be pretty already abreast to. Yeah. So then this whole piece of how how do we educate the consumers to this fact while still retaining the joy of it, the candy, if you will, but that they learn to appreciate it in a new way? Well, I think one way, and I will give, I don't know if they were the first, I will give Dick Taylor credit for this. They really changed packaging. And I think looking back, and I could be wrong about that because I wasn't around when they started, but just sort of looking back through, you know, the records, like they came out with thoughtful packaging. It feels less to me like a a marketing thing, whereas another well-known maker that was trashed in the media was like, this is our marketing edge. But where Dick Taylor was like, well, we're these guys and we make chocolate and we want packaging that reflects that. And people can say, like the naysayers, like it's not all about the packaging, but it does then represent this is different. This is not what we've all been, you know, what we all used to grow up with or whatever. It's not just candy. It's something different. And it's something that's thoughtful. And then I think it's kind of up to the consumer, right, to say, well, oh, I want something that's thoughtful. So that's, to me, why the more makers we have that are doing thoughtful chocolate, trying to do it their way, 
it's reaching into more people's consciousness and to their awareness where they see it and they're like, huh. And they, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about price, cost, $10 bar, $12, $18, whatever they all are. And as someone who my finances are pretty meager, yeah, I don't just walk in the, the chocolate shops that I go to and spend hundreds of dollars on bars. Some other people can do that. I understand that perspective of, I'm going to buy someone a gift or I'm going to treat myself to this or there's something I want to try. And so I've been there. Where I've looked at all the chocolate. And even two years ago, the first time I walked in the meadow in Portland and I was like, oh, well, huh. You know, what does this mean? I didn't know at the time. Do I like Guatemala? Do I like a Guatemala chocolate? I don't know. What does that mean? Guatemala. Oh, it's a country. But why Guatemala? 74%. What do I, as a consumer, need to know about that? And so I'm looking at it and trying to decide. And to be honest, I went 100% off of two things. One, a maker I'd heard their name before from John. Oh, I'll try their bar. I was horribly disappointed when I got it home and there was no mention of origin anywhere on the bar. To this day, I am still disappointed and quite frankly, a little pissed off because I know now that means it's a blend. You didn't say blend on there. I wouldn't have bought it because I was trying to be a consumer that was buying single origin chocolate. I know now there's no origin. Nine times out of 10, it must be a blend, right? Why would you not, if you're a craft chocolate maker, not have the origin? I'm not going to mention that maker's name. But like, and now I think they are saying it's a blend. Then I bought the other one, the other bar, about three bars that day. Two makers that I'd heard of. One was Dick Taylor, and it was Belize because I bought Belize beans. And so I wanted to see, well, what does Belize taste like? But that's from a chocolate maker's perspective, right? But their packaging was beautiful and felt worthwhile of my time and effort in buying the chocolate. The other one was disappointing only because it didn't say the origin. So I, I guess it's a blend. And then the other one was the packaging was so beautiful. It was just so amazing to me that it was like a gift in itself that they had done this packaging that I really, really liked and appealed to me. So and lots of other bars were lost in a sea of a certain style of fine chocolate packaging in those quotation marks. They had information about, you know, we're bean to bar. We did, these are the finest beans we could source. And I kept reading that over and over and over again. I think from the consumer's end, it can be daunting and there's a kind of, I don't want to say, the word's not snobbishness. It's like in a, like this presumption. Maybe a disconnect. Yeah. Or like, you should already know this. If you're looking at my bar, you should just already know what this is all about. I don't need to explain to you what this is. But then the flip side of that, and I get it as somebody who has to do packaging is, yeah, I don't really, for me personally... I don't want a package that is just beating me over the head with so much information. Every little detail of everything that you did. You fed your cat that day that you made the bar or whatever. Like, oh, whoa. (laughs) It's a tweet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't need all that. I think that's what Craft Chocolate is trying to do, right? Make and educate at the same time. It's evolving all at the same time, which I think we are hugely lucky at the same time that it's evolving that now we have people who are interested in chocolate that are trying it and like say on Instagram and I don't do Facebook maybe they're there too are talking about it 
in just a conversational way, not talking about it from the standpoint of I am the expert, therefore I know better than you. That language doesn't ever really work for me if I'm trying to learn something new. So the fact that you have people who are trying lots of bars, uh, educating themselves, and then sharing that, and then helping other people come to it, that is huge. Right. We need those consumers just as much as we need the makers that are the outliers, so to speak, because all of that creates a more robust and diverse network of of individuals and of product. And I was going to say, along with that, and this is for new makers who might listen to, to this, I mean, it is a, it's a gift when, the, when people say, I'd like to try your chocolate or review your chocolate or whatever. I know it can be terrifying and daunting and whatever. You know, I, I don't know if they're still doing it. Flavors of Cacao as a website and they, they had like everybody was ranked and numbers and they, the Manhattan Chocolate Society, they would taste your chocolate. And uh, I actually was, of course, terrified, but happy to send bars because they had a, a really good system in place. It wasn't just one person tasting chocolate saying, I decree it to be this or that. It was people who had tasted lots of chocolate and were doing it. And I thought the feedback was helpful. Like, oh, am I, am I getting close to hitting the mark or beyond that sort of review-ishness that's out there? Because, of course, that's chocolate. So it's been around a long time with that. I think it's the newer. It's like Sophia. And Estelle Tracy from 37 Chocolates, their willingness to try new unknown craft chocolate makers cannot be understated. There is a whole other entity of you're new. And by virtue of the fact that you're new, we're not interested in you. Like that's still, there's like a stronghold of that in there. For the new up and coming craft chocolate makers, I think it's, it's so great that we have people who are willing to give us a try. They might try bar and it, it, it might not be good or whatever, but at least they're willing to give us a try. I think it's amazing. As a sole founder and, and as a sole maker for so long, I mean, I think you're on the cusp of hiring people, or maybe you already have, but you've certainly gone through that internal debate of, I have this vision, I have this dream, I make it happen. Is it good enough? Yeah. And sometimes it is because it's true to us. Additionally, you know, as we've been talking about through this podcast, there's that need for connection. And if something doesn't, resonate with the other person, then then why do we make it at all? Yeah, exactly. But then my own experience, I've definitely had pushback. What they don't know is, <laughs> if you tell me no, I heard the word go, go for it. You know, I'm from a generation my age, you know, I'm 56. Hello, I grew up before Title IX. I wanted to play soccer. There wasn't a girl soccer team. I played soccer anyway. I wanted to be a river guide. Women weren't river guides. I mean, I had the first company I went to laugh at me. Are you kidding me, sweetie? Women can't row a boat. Even when I became a river guide in the Grand Canyon, I was a trip leader. There were owners of other companies that wouldn't speak to me. We're supposed to negotiate camps. They wouldn't talk to me. They would talk to the guys. For me, the no, no, no is like, uh, no, don't take no for an answer. So a year ago, I had a chocolate entity. I appreciate what you're doing. However, you're not good enough to be here. Don't be calling yourself a craft chocolate maker. And that's life. Someone's going to say no to you. And then it's completely up to each of us to take that no and make it into a beautiful paper airplane and fly it out the window into whatever direction we want it to go. Don't, don't take no for an answer. 
I mean, I, I feel that that's quite apropos because here we are on, on a show that's devoted to women in chocolate and women in the industry in general, whether that be at origin or the supply chain, et cetera. So how many times have you heard, or maybe rather, what advice do you give to women in the industry? Well, for whatever it's worth, we have Denise Castronovo. Okay, nobody can tell her, like, her chocolate's not good enough, right? I mean, if you look at it based on who's winning all these giant international awards, I mean, I don't do the award circuit thing. But if you look at that, okay, there's Denise, and she's a woman. And then there's Christine Pellet de Bean. And they both strike me, Yoon, um, who's smooth chocolater. Like you've, there are women who are doing amazing chocolate, amazing things in chocolate. I mean, so many. I mean, they're not the only ones. I think it's like a double-sided coin. You have to listen to what people say to you. I think I said that to you earlier. Like when someone says, I really don't like the way this tastes. This didn't work for me. It's easy because you've created it to be attached to it and think, oh my gosh, it's, they're wrong. They're wrong or whatever. And it could be, you know, you have to go, well, everyone has a different palate. Everyone has a different experience. And you just have to say, oh, that's not everything. That's not the end answer. But you do, as a maker of something that people are going to taste, then you have to say, huh, do they have something I want to listen to, give any credence to? So it's like, you don't take no for an answer, but you do keep your ears open. <laughs> I think that's hard. It's easy to take things so personally, but because I think a lot of makers are creative, even if they're engineers, they're creating something. And then, so you have that thing of, I'm making this, this is my interpretation, I'm putting it out in the world, and yeah, not everyone's going to like it. You know, there's been numerous times when I wasn't going to do something, whether it was a bar or whatever, and somebody has said, oh, and I really like that oh, I wish you did this, or have you thought about that? And I've been happy that I listened to it. So that's the thing. It's like, don't take no for an answer, but you have to keep your ears open and find that place inside you where you know when you're hearing the truth. And sometimes that's hard. I mean, I will say, I don't know, of course, if other makers feel this way. I, I'm, I'm terrified sending bars out. And even bars that I've had good feedback on. It's terrifying. You think, oh my gosh, sooner or later, someone's going to go, oh my gosh, I hated this. And you hope that people are going to enjoy it or maybe even love it. But that's also, that's a big order to fill. You know, not everybody's going to. And my sister is very honest and she worked in New York City and her husband was in the food industry. They have all these chefy friends and she's brutally honest with me. I can trust her. It's good to have people that you can trust that will be honest with you. Because often close family members and friends just love it because you're giving them chocolate and it's exciting, you know? It's good to have people who can try it. But even then, it's like, if you believe in something, then you just you stick with it. Well said. Thank you. From where I'm starting out of my business, I want to listen to you talk for the next 24 hours. And I know that the person who gets to be your apprentice is going to have just a fantastic time being by your side and building the business together. Maybe there'll be many of them in whatever capacity you determine is the final size and wherever map goes. 
Super appreciate you taking the time to chat today. We always close with the two questions that are maybe quite familiar to our audience by now, but it will start with, what does cacao mean to you? I, I think, again, I know people probably think, oh my gosh, this person's out there. She lives in Oregon and we're on the edge of everything in Oregon. But I've often thought, you know, it's not really a surprise. They're like, okay, so cacao grows around 20 degrees north or south of the equator all around the world. And that is the thing that blew me away the most. Not really that it's different flavors, but I didn't know it grew, you know, in Fiji. I, I mean, I guess I was like, South America, I guess, Mexico, Belize, all the places around the world that it grows, Madagascar, for God's sakes, who knew? I often will say to myself, when things seem troubled, like we're people who are in troubled times, I'm like, you know, chocolate, there's that thing, chocolate's the food of the gods. I actually think chocolate, it might be the food of the gods, but it was like the thing that the gods needed. If you really think about that statement, like, well, maybe the gods needed this thing on earth that was amazing. It feels to me like maybe chocolate is, is holding the world together at the seams. It goes through so many cultures, so many different ways. And it's having this incredible, like, resurgence into, like, I think Sophie was saying, you know, it used to be like all the kids knew how it was made and where it came from. And that's all coming back again at a time when we really do need things that link us together. So that's what cacao means to me. It's, it's holding us together around the world. That's a tearjerker. Oh, gosh, if we could just make that be known to the world that it's holding us together at the seams. That's beautiful. There's the writer in you coming out. Thank you, Mackenzie. (laughs) And now if you could choose three chocolates or origins or makers that you would decide to go off into the cosmos with you, what would that be? Who would they be? Where would they be from? Gosh, darn. It is the hardest question hard because, you know, I'm kind of fickle, right? Like that's, I change my bars seasonally for my own selfishness because I like to change it up. And I was also known to family and friends as the person who painted her kitchen like seven different colors in three years. So that it's hard to nail that down. But origins, you know, I have to say, I am really, I said this to you once before, I'm really drawn to the beans from Fiji. And I think the beans from Fiji represent like old school chocolate in a way to me. They just have, they have something about them that seems necessary in chocolate making. And so I would say the origin I would take would be Fiji. Now I'm sad because of all the other origins that I love that I left them behind. (laughs) Like, please, I'll come back for you. And I think um, I, I really don't have... No, you know what? The bar I would take is Love Shack. I'm going to take one of my own bars. And the reason I would take one of my own bars has nothing to do with I don't think it's better than anybody else's bar. But if I'm going to head out to the cosmos, I'm going to take something that represents love and maybe sort of being a misfit and doing things your own way. All of that. So Love Shack. That's what it all means to me. So I would take Love Shack bar and I would take Fiji which did not make the Love Shack bar. Of course, that's Tin Yang. But, and then I think I would take John. Um, he is, like I said before, he's so generous. Yeah, I wouldn't be a chocolate maker without him. And he would be probably mortified that I am like breaking down saying that. He's just a great friend. 
a huge gift to all craft chocolate makers. He's the kindest soul you'll ever encounter in the craft chocolate world. I mean, really. And maybe he's right when he says there's no bad chocolate. I love your responses and I love your authenticity. And I have to say one more thing. You know, and, yeah. And so yeah, just please. for the record, so Sandy, John's girlfriend, I would take you too. <laughs> I'm not going to like whisk John off in the cosmos and leave Sandy behind. Super kind of you to consider the partners. And for me, is also very personal because somehow we land in the chocolate sphere and it's not always clear to us even how it came to be or how serendipity got in the way of you were one of the first people that I encountered that really spoke to me. And I said, gosh, you know, if I could emulate, that's really where I want to take my business or how I want to be perceived by my audience. And what you just stated in in your own words is, is also why many of us do it. And it's because it's just something that is heartfelt and knocks you over and takes takes your breath away and makes you tear up because it's for us very, very important. And again, to bring back your words of holding us together. So Mackenzie, thank you for lending your your words, your poetry, your chocolate, your making, and all the tools that you're now giving us to lead more fruitful lives. Well, thank you so much for wanting to talk and letting me share my thoughts, talk about it all. With that, I'm going to close it for today and we will have more inspiring women in the future. Good. Well, thanks a lot, Lauren. Take care. Thank you, Mackenzie, for being well-tempered. And thank you for listening. Mackenzie is currently running a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo.com. Simply go there and search for Map Chocolate. Every little bit helps her get closer to achieving her goal of buying a new grinder or melanger for her chocolate-making production, while still maintaining the integrity and scale of her business vision. For well-tempered updates, check weekendchocolate.com, as well as join our group of industry professionals on Facebook, searching for well-tempered, or that's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash well-tempered. Thanks again. See you next time. This podcast was produced, mixed, and edited by me, Lauren Heineck. The song, Chocolate Store, that you hear at the beginning and end of the show, was composed and sung by the talented Anna Garcia. Now have a listen. One morning when I was a child, my mommy asked me with a smile, what you will be when you get older. The only thing I have clear is just to make this place a bit warmer. She looked at me and with her voice as she answered, If you want to make this place a sweeter world, Come
such a sweet dream.